apparently Cecilia doesn't think y'all are very punctual. That's what I'm talking So 6.30 this Wednesday, the class will start promptly, okay? Um, glad you're here. Really, really excited about uh, this teaching. I'm Josh, if we haven't met. Um, missed you guys last week. I really did. I, it was fun to hang out with the family. We went down to Dallas, Texas, uh, and then uh, Julie's brother lives in Dallas. We got to see uh, Julie's family, and that was a lot of fun. And then we went to Waco, Texas to go see uh, uh, the fixer-upper stuff I'm talking about. And so you just walk around and sweat a lot. That's what you do down there. And my daughter, over and over again, just reminds me, this is Sophie. This is like if she really wants to give me a really good dig, like when she wants to be really mean, she'll look at me and she'll go, Daddy, Chippy's funnier than you. Chip from Fix Her Upper. That's what she tells me over and over again. But happy to be back. I, um, I did think about being gone and felt a little guilty about it and going, ah, I want to be back here. So what I did while I was gone is I started working on this sermon a couple weeks back, really worked hard on it last week. So I got a lot of material. So just because... I, I think I owe it to you to teach for a really long time this week since I took it off last week. So don't worry. I'll feed you baby birds. Really excited about that. Now, if you're new, haven't been here in a couple of weeks, or just as a reminder, um, when we teach, we teach through a, a, a pretty good clump of Scripture. or Maybe I shouldn't say clump. Apparently that's the wrong term there. Um, a, a good section of, of Scripture, and basically what we do most weeks is we open up the Bible, we read from it, and uh, talk about it uh, passage after passage. And as a result of that, because we kind of go through kind of a big theme, a little bit, uh, it takes more than one week. And so we've been in a pretty lengthy series here, and we'll be in uh, kind of a portion of the series for quite some time. And the series that we've just kind of entitled, what we've been calling is just Genesis, just Genesis. And so it's just the very beginning of the Bible. It's just the first uh, book. And uh, just to kind of catch you up on those things, basically the Bible, 66 books, kind of, uh, there's an Old Testament and a New Testament, and kind of the idea of the Old Testament is um, God establishing an order in a family, and then uh, giving us some pretty specific instruction, and inviting us into his story, and uh, the other part of that story, so that the, the Old Testament begins with this kind of account that we would refer to as creation, right? It tells us how we got here. Tells us how we got here. In fact, the word Genesis uh, uh, means in the beginning, but it's also the same word that we use for genes, our genetics. So it literally talks about who our parents are and who their parents are and who their parents are. So in the beginning, in the Old Testament, God begins this whole thing by telling us how we got here, how the world got here, all that kind of stuff, and the way that he establishes it. This is really, really interesting. The very first thing he establishes for us, after creating the whole world, inviting us into the whole world, he establishes a family. So when God thinks about all human growth and development, how he wanted us all to grow up, all to be developed, all those different things, the way by which he decided to do that was to give a mom and a dad and some kiddos, right? He decided that the best incubator, the best environment for a healthy uh, world and a healthy life would be actually a mom and a dad and a family. So the very first thing God sets up is a family, which is really interesting because while I would tell you and stand up here that that was God's original design, you think about family and probably don't think about it with quite the same nostalgia and appreciation, right? Many of you in this room don't have a relationship with your parents. Some of you don't even know who your parents are. Some of you right now as an adult don't have a relationship with your kiddos, when we think about family, this isn't to make you feel bad or bring up and, you know, all these emotions. The reality is as we think about family, when we think about the family unit, for a lot of us, it doesn't bring us lots of joy and hope. It actually brings us some shame and embarrassment 
and pain, you go, well, that's so messed up because the God of the universe had a plan from the very beginning to, to give us the right genetics, gave us parents to grow up in a home that we were going to be loved and felt secure and cared for. And yet the reality for many of us, that's just not the case. Right? In fact, um, much of psychology and counseling deals with something that we call foo. That's the family of origin. Going back and tinkering with, okay, what is it that you learned growing up about how to feel attachment, how to feel secure, how to feel connected, and how to feel safe, and all those different things, and deal with where those things went wrong. And so the Bible, in the very beginning, sets it up and says the, the original plan was the family. Now, one thing I'll say about that, and we talked about the very first week of the series, is um, we are not currently living in God's original design. And what the Bible tells us pretty quickly in, in the first couple of chapters of Genesis is not only did God create it, set up a family, but that family, that first family, Adam and Eve, they turned their back on God. They basically said, we like our plan better than yours. And what we discovered in that is that there's just this thing called sin. And you, you're familiar with it because you've heard of people holding up the signs, screaming at people, telling them that God hates them for their sin or the bullhorns. And that's not what we're talking about here. At its very basic definition, sin just means missing the mark. The way that I would define it is when we decide to take um, God's place in our life, when we go, we like our plan better than yours. That's just what it is. And the reality is every single one of us in this room, we've operated in that way. We have told God we like our plan better than his. Either we've said it out loud, that's great, God, I'm going to do my own thing. Or we've just said, God, we don't even believe you exist. So why in the world would I entrust any of my life to you if you don't even exist? So for some reason, whatever that looks like, we have looked at a creator and said either you're not there so we can't follow you or we don't really want to follow you. And what happens as a result of that is God leaves human beings to their own vices. And if you think about all sorts of different things, think about sitting a gallon of ice cream in front of your four-year-old. They'll eat every, every bit of it and then they'll throw it up. If you think about any kind of addiction, that what used to feel good, that one thing you put into your body that made you feel some relief, some escape, some joy, some pleasure, some hope, something. That thing, that first time, whether it was that pill, that drink, that needle, whatever it is, there was a moment where that just felt so good. But you continue to play the tape through and it doesn't feel good anymore. And now you're actually enslaved to this thing that you hate. Right? And so in any of these experiences, basically what happens is when human beings go, God, we like our plan better than yours. God, we want to do our own thing. I'm not really interested in your thing. God goes, okay, you can have your way. Right, Tim Keller, I tell you this a lot, talks about hell and says, the reality is God doesn't send people to hell. It's not this angry God is just trying to send people to hell. The reality is if you spend your entire life saying, God, I want nothing to do with you. I don't want to be around you. I don't believe you exist. I want nothing to do with you. I want to be in charge of my own life. Leave me alone. Eventually, if people spend their whole life doing that, eventually they get their wish. And hell is this eternal, perpetual place where you're walking further and further from God every single day, and therefore life gets worse and worse. And so that doesn't begin in eternity. Literally, some of us are experiencing that hell on earth now that just is just going to be exacerbated to all eternity into a horrific thing. And so this reality is Adam and Eve, in the very beginning, they were created to be in this great relationship, and then they just turned their back on it. Now, what we're going to see throughout the rest of the, this morning is there's actually two different parts. The Old Testament alludes to this. So the Old Testament is all talking about the foundation of how we got here and what's wrong. And really, it's just this. We're all so broken, we can't fix ourselves. It's the whole story of the Old Testament. Hey, let me write 39 books. Let me give you all this information to show you how the human race just continues to destroy itself. So that was 
eternity past all the way to now. That's just been how it's worked with us. And so the whole Old Testament goes, you are broken. You can't fix yourself. At some point, could you just admit that? It's the whole story of the Old Testament. And then God would go, but there is a way where there seems to be no way, where there seems to be no hope, where there seems to be nothing that's good for anything, where there seems to be none of that, where there is no way, God goes, I'll make a way. And so the whole Old Testament, this story of the broken humanity, all this God continues to say, hey, whispering in their ear, you're still love. There's still a plan. I will send a Savior. And the whole Old Testament is pointing to this Savior, Jesus. And the New Testament begins with Jesus showing up on this planet. And one of the things he said on this planet, God of the universe steps down in the form of a human baby. And the craziest act of humility, born in a barn, mistreated, spit on, all those things. And God, through Jesus, continued to say over and over again, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. It came to buy us back. And that's this term that we use throughout the New Testament called redemption. We see it show up in Genesis chapter 3 where God says, there's going to be pain and suffering, but I'm going to buy you back. There's going to be a mess, but I'm going to come back. Where there is no way, I'm going to make a way. And so the whole story of the Bible is that we were created, we messed it up. And yet God invites us back into a story. But not only does he invite us back into a story he, and to be loved and cared for by him, he invites us back to actually participate in it. Like to actually do what we were created to do. And so as we kind of sort through this message today on just the whole Bible, the creation, the fall, the redemption, the restoration, just want to have this in front of us because we're going to keep coming back to it. And what's really interesting, when we look about God actually invites us to do, to participate in, he actually tells us about in the very beginning. In fact, Genesis 1, chapter 28, he installs and creates the family, creates it, and then he gives us some uh, really specific instructions. And here's what it says, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed them, that's Adam and Eve, that's the family, and said to them, watch this, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, that's right, you get to fish, and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. It doesn't mention crabs, that's why you should not spend all your time dealing with the, oh my goodness, that stuff, I don't know what I'm supposed to eat. Like I'm not sure what part I'm supposed to eat. I think I'm eating like livers and feces and the crab. I have no idea what I'm supposed to eat. Like, they don't come diagrammed. Right? Anyway, sorry. I don't understand the crab thing. You, you guys can have your crabs, okay? So, says all these things and goes, here's kind of the mission. The mission is be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and then be good stewards of it, right? So, in the beginning, there is an institution, the family, how the whole human growth and development thing is supposed to happen. No, we get it wrong, and you're going to see how God redeems it later. And then there is actually a mission and a purpose. You know what the purpose is? Have babies, travel, right? And take care of the land. This was far be long before the fall. This is actually what we we're created to do, which is really interesting. Here's what God's telling you. This mean God that you've heard about. Hey, guys, have lots of sex and travel a lot. Right? I mean, this is like, this is like the picturesque Instagram couple who just got married, right? That, that's what they want to do. They want to take pictures in all over the globe and just be fruitful, right? Literally, this is what God tells human beings to do in the very beginning. This is not a mean God. You like to travel? He likes that about you, right? You like the other thing that I won't mention the word anymore because there's kiddos in here? Actually wired that way from the very beginning. So God literally says, here's your job. You had one job. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the whole earth. Whole earth. So there is this plan, have a family, enjoy the family, 
take care of the babies, watch them grow, enjoy all that, right? Enjoy the family and make sure this whole earth is filled. Every corner of the earth. That was God's original plan. That was it, right? Take care of the land, feel good about it. It'll be fun, it'll be joyful. Love your spouse, love your kids. All that was the original design. And yet what we see over and over again is God and Adam and Eve, and then you see the lineage of Cain and Abel, and then Noah, they continue to go, ah, God, that is, we don't really want to do that. We'd rather do our own thing. We'd rather mess it up, right? And so as you saw, as Ben talked last week about the story of Noah, so basically you see this, this lineage where Adam and Eve, they do it, and they mess it up, and you just see time after time after time where more and more people just keep messing it up to the point where God grieves his people and going, they're just killing themselves. They're destroying their lives, and there is nothing left but misery. And so God actually pushes the reset button, right? God can, because he can see all, see the whole tape going forward. He knows exactly what's going to happen. So he can look into a world that's completely broken and go, there is no hope. Which is what I love about the story of Noah, by the way, is that if God saw no hope and his perfect mercy, he would, he would remove you from the pain. Which means, this is really interesting, which means if you are living and you're breathing and your heart is beating, that means God is looking to the future and still sees some hope for you, right? So the story of Noah is if where there is no more hope, God's going to be merciful, which means there is no excuse for us. There is no, this is a hopeless, bleak, dark world. God is peering into your future and going, no, 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 there's, there's still hope. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, you might be living here right now. Oh, but there's a whole nother plan available to you, right? And so you see the story of Noah, and God pushes the reset button, and he decides to start back over again with the family. So we see Noah and his kiddos, they get started again in life, right? They get off the boat, and you're going, oh, that's so weird. And I just offer you some interesting things about this. Okay, how in the world did God populate the whole earth with just these few families? Is it ancestral? I got all these things to kind of work on. And here's what I just would argue. We all got here somehow. We all got here somehow. Like, we're here. And even the smartest scientists, um, the geneticists, Genesis genes, right? They all point to a couple really interesting things, right? And there's this really neat thing as we think about genes, and you know it now. You got 23andMe, Ancestry.com. There's all these places where we can track down some of this stuff, right? And so for, I don't know, 30, 40, 40 years now, people have been tracking this thing. There's this human genome project, and uh, several, 40 years, I think 30 years ago, maybe late 80s, late 90s, not sure exactly. Um, a bunch of scientists kind of tracked down um, the DNA of people, and they found you got a couple different types of DNA. One is like uh, the normal type, you know, the genome DNA. That's where the DNA is tracked in the nucleus, okay? In that, each piece of DNA, there's somewhere between 20 and 25,000 pieces of information, right? That's in the nucleus of a cell, all this stuff, that you can track all that down. One of the things they discovered was this thing called mitochondrial DNA, okay? And instead of having 20 to 25,000 pieces of information, it comes with 37. That's a lot easier to track, right? And so what mitochondrial DNA is, that is the maternal DNA, right? It only passes from the mom to the kiddos. Every kiddo gets it, but not every kiddo passes it on. You follow? So it's the, it's the, it's the, it happens in the mitochondria, you can look it up later, in the cell, where you get this, this mitochondrial DNA where it runs straight through the lineage of the mamas. Mamas go all the way down, right? And they started tracing that back. Really, really pretty amazing. And they found that there is what Nell is referred to in science as the mitochondrial Eve, meaning Every human being in here can trace that mitochondrial DNA back to one specific female. 
So I don't know what that means for about us as, as ancestral, how all that works. I'm just saying we're all really brothers and sisters, right? Somewhere in eternity past, way, way back in the distance, put the number on it. Maybe you'll say 6,000 the Bible. Maybe you'll say a couple hundred thousand, whatever that is. In the beginning, there was a, and what we would call a mitochondrial Eve. You know, a scientist, an evolutionist wouldn't say, yeah, that proves God. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, we can track it all down. So we all know we started somewhere, right? What's even more interesting is in human history and science, they would point to a bottleneck, like a bottleneck in human history, where our entire population on the earth shrunk down to a very small number. You know, the, the number could be 10, the number could be 10,000, but there was a moment where it just shrunk down. You know, what's really interesting about that, there's this thing in mitochondrial DNA called haplogroup groups, right? And that is actually how they can pair up how many different women there were, right? So you start with mitochondrial Eve, and for mitochondrial Eve, you can actually find what they refer to as three different major groups, all coming from three women. That's uh, one of them's uh, defined as an M, M group. Another one's N group. Another's R group. And so literally, if we trace back in the future, if we go, I mean, back to the past, if we look all the way back in the past, there is this moment in human history where they believe there's a bottleneck, where the whole population shrunk down, Right? And then the whole population grows back from three females, three different groups. You know, if you look on the, the, the boat, and I'm not trying to convince you apologetically, I'm just saying, every evolutionist would point this out, not that it matches the Bible, but all of us come to three different groups. Every single one of us right now, if we were to go and get our mitochondrial DNA, those 37 groups of pieces of information, they would all point to one of these three places, M, N, and R. You know how many mamas had kids? Post Noah in the boat. Three. Don't think Eve's, uh, Noah's wife had any more kiddos, but we do know that all three mamas had kids. And so even there, as crazy as this, that we can trace our entire human history to a bottleneck where three groups coming from mitochondrial Eve started making babies. And it's not that long ago. So regardless of whether you believe the science and, or believe the Bible, it's going, there's something really interesting here. And this is what I love about science. Love it. It's like, all we are doing is proving more of what God already did. Like, all we're doing is discovering more about how amazing God is. Like, to think about that DNA and what he is telling us about ourselves and all that. It's just pretty incredible. So anyway, so all that starts with genetics, right? And so then we get past Noah on the boat. The kids come off. There's some interesting things that happen there, which is really interesting. I just want to point it out because I don't want us not to miss it. Noah has this really crazy moment with God. He hears from God. He's faithful to God. He responds to God. God saves his family. Okay, reset button, trying to figure his family. And the first thing he does when he gets off the boat, gets wasted. Completely drunk. Like completely drunk. Not only just drunk, completely naked. Okay? So Noah is naked and drunk. And this is what God's faithful, the most godly man on earth does in the moment after he gets off the boat. So here's a couple things I point out there. When God says he looked on the earth and grieved, we're looking at people that are a lot worse than this really faithful guy who, as soon as he gets off the boat, he gets wasted, strips down naked, and starts dancing in front of his kids. Right? So it's a pretty interesting thing. This is how broken the human race is. So again, the thing I love about our church, want us to be this kind of church. If you're a guest here, I want you to know this. One thing we, can, we should be able to completely clarify is we are, we are broken we cannot fix ourselves. We try really hard, and the reality is, just like Noah, we need a Savior to cover us, right? And so all this stuff happens, and so Noah and his family get off the boat, and then they kind of establish a place, and then they start growing again. The family gets bigger. The family tree gets bigger, right? The family reunions, they're going to now have the cute matching tie-dyed shirts so they can all go to Disney together, right? 
when we were in Waco at Fixer Upper, there were, there was a big family there. And I just felt so bad for them. Because there were about 15 of them. There were about four grown men and a bunch of ladies. And the ladies, they, they all had these really ridiculous, cute tie-dyed shirts on, talking about how this is their, like, I don't know, Fixer Upper tour shirt or whatever else. And they had all these cute little sayings on, like, Demo Day. And all these ladies were just bright and happy and smiling. And then behind them were the four dudes <laughs> with all the bags, with the frowny faces, and these pink tie-dyed shirts. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, right? It's just like, oh, that's, that's thanks, ladies. Um, but anyway, so the, the, the family starts growing really interesting, and they guys kind of start having roots. And you read Genesis chapter 10. It's called the Table of the Nations. It basically says, here's how it all started. Here's all the genealogies. Here's where it is. And then about 100 years later, uh, we find them in this place. We're going to refer to it as Babel, also uh, known as Babylon. And throughout the Bible, this is a place that basically is God's enemy. The word Babylon throughout scriptures is this place where people go, we like our plan better than yours. And so they end up in this place. It's in uh, modern-day Iraq. And we're going to see this family. Remember God's first institution, the family? We're going to see this family, and we have hope going, maybe finally, after all this mess and all these stories, maybe the family will get it right. Uh, go ahead and tell you they don't, and we'll see what that means for us. And so here's what happens, Genesis chapter 11. We find the first family with all three mitochondrial DNA haplogroups, all that kind of stuff. Here it is. Let me read it to you. Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. That's really confusing to us, right? Have you thought about how many different languages we have? Hundreds of thousands of different languages. Have you ever thought about why we have those? It makes more sense that we have lots of languages because that's what we've always known. But why in the world do we have lots of languages? Have you ever thought about that? Is it because, I mean, I understand in some ways there's like this um, evolution of speech. You know, somewhere in the South, uh, we were lazy and didn't want to say ruined. So we just started saying weren't. Boy, that got weren't, you know. Uh, Mike could have. Mike could have. What does that mean? It's like when we want to be really ambiguous about whether or not we're going to do something, instead of explaining that, we say, oh, we might could have done that. Yeah. Or if you don't like that dog, you say, that dog don't hunt. What does that mean? I have no idea, right? So maybe there's some evolution in terms of speaking. But here in Genesis chapter 11, it says their whole world had one language and a common speech. Now, we'll find out in just a second because it's just one family. They're all in one place. As people moved eastward, so remember, there is this mandate from the beginning, have sex and travel, right? That's it. Be fruitful, multiply, the whole mandate in the scriptures. So that still sticks to no one what they're supposed to do. And it says, as people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. So they go, ah, oh, we don't really want to travel anymore. This seems like a good enough spot. They set up our culture. Right? This is, so they settled there. Verse 3, it says this. They said to each other, because they have one language, they can do that. Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Okay? So this is, uh, this isn't, uh, yeah, so this is just them making some material. And watch what it says next. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. That word tar in the original language actually looks more like, some, like an asphalt. Right? And so literally from the very beginning, they decided they're going to establish themselves something, a city, whatever it is. And what it says here is it said they chose brick instead of stone. You go, why in the world does, does Moses need us to know that? It's pretty interesting because you, bricks are man-made. Right? So this is stone is God-made. 
right? And so in this moment, you see them decide that they're going to start making their own materials. Now, this is really arrogant of them because they didn't create the materials, right? It's like you say you bake cookies. No, you make cookies. You don't make cookies. You take a bunch of ingredients, put them in the oven, and voila, cookies there. But you didn't make any of the ingredients that went into the cookies, right? You just rearranged them. So in this moment, these guys are going to think they're making their own stuff. We don't need God's stone. We'll make our own bricks, right? And so it says they make them, and then they use tar for the mortar, right? Verse 4, really, really important. I'm going to camp here for just a second. So I think it's just very indicative of just how our world is and what's going on with us and why the family unit and everything's so messy. And watch what it says. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So they come and come with a plan. The first thing they say is, we got to do something because God wants us to go everywhere else. So let's come up with another purpose to just stay here. So let's do this. And they say three things. Let's make ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Self, right? So the first thing you got is you got a city, a tower, and a name for ourselves. And this is what's really interesting because it's still what we're all looking for, right? City, place to belong, right? Let's make a, a place to belong. Let's define it. Like you want it, you can think about it as your house with your little fence, your community, whatever it is. Let's go make a city. So what they're looking for here is a place to belong. Second thing is they have this thing where they're going to build a tower. That's a purpose. So they want a place to belong in this. They need a place to belong, and they need a purpose. So not only do they need to belong, they need to do something with their hands, right? So they need to build this tower. And then it says a third thing. This is really interesting. And let's make a name for ourselves. So they want a place to belong. They want a purpose, and they want some greatness. That's what is established here. They want a place to belong. They want a purpose, and they want to experience greatness, right? That's, they want to be established as great, which is interesting because in the very beginning, hundreds of years or thousands of years earlier, they had all that. Adam and Eve had a city, a garden where they belonged. They it actually says they were naked and felt no shame. They were completely welcomed in it. They had a purpose, right? They be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, all those things. And they were fully and distinctly connected to greatness. So what we see here, and this is for all of us, the three things we want. Look, we want some community. We want our lives to matter. And we, this isn't even, this isn't even arrogant, but deep down in our heads, in our minds, we actually want to do something that matters. Like we, we think there's more to experience and more to do in our life than we currently feel or experience, right? You don't have to be a Christian to believe in that stuff. Like all of us want to belong, every single one of us, all of us actually want our life to matter with some purpose. And we think there's something out there that's greater than what we're currently experiencing. We want to experience greatness. You know, the way that we've shaped that is we want to talk about our own legacy. We want our names on library buildings. We want to be known, right? We want it about our namesake. But deep down, hardwired in us is actually this desire to feel and connect to this, this greatness, right? And so the one thing I just know there is their um, desires here are inappropriate. Their behavior is. Because those desires they have, that desire to belong, that was in them from the very beginning. Those desires to have a purpose, no, God made them to do that. Their desire to experience greatness, nope, hardwired in them. In fact, what we see here is a response to what we lost in the fall. And so they say, these are the three things we want. We want 
to belong, we want a purpose, and we want a name for ourselves. But we want God not to be a part of any of that, right? Because God said, otherwise we'll have to go to the, into the earth. So watch what happens next. But the Lord God came down to the city and the tower the people were building. Okay, so same thing is they're looking for all these things. They're going, okay, we want a purpose. We want a place to belong, and we want greatness, and we don't know where to find it, but we think this tower could be the thing. Just interesting, you know, uh, Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton has this really interesting thought where he says, every time a man knocks on the door of a brothel, he's looking for God. Every time a man knocks on the door of a brothel, what he's really looking for is God. He just doesn't know it. He thinks the pleasure of the escape would be enough. What he's really looking for is God. And so God's going, these guys are looking for me, right? They are looking for me. They think it's going to be found in this. They're looking for fulfillment. They're looking for purpose. They're looking for belonging. They're looking for greatness. All that is found in me. And so what it says here, really, really interesting, it says, and he came down. So they're trying to build up. This is a play on words. God came down, right? Some of this could seem condescending, but I don't really think it is. I think it's a picture of what's to come. The whole story of the gospel is we were created in God's image. We messed it up to the point where we couldn't fix it. And the only one who could fix it was Jesus. And how does he fix it? He comes down. He says, oh, you're knocking on the door of the brothel, but that's not what you're looking for. You're looking for me. So God gives us a glimpse of this in the very beginning, and he shows up, and it says he came down, right? Now, it doesn't look like redemption yet. Watch what happens next. The Lord said, this is a crazy verse, so I want you to just pay attention to it. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. So he makes kind of some observations about this tower. Apparently, it's going really well, and it's getting really big. And he says something. He says, if, as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. And at first glance, you go, wow, God doesn't want them to do fancy things. That's not what's going on here. What God realizes is the things that we would get together to do that wouldn't be impossible for us wouldn't be for God's glory. They'd be for evil. You look at a nation, you go, how could that many Jewish people be murdered by human beings? Why? Because if a bunch of people get together and communicate, and there's a leader who defines where they can find some belonging, the Nazi regime, find where they can find some purpose, expand the mission, and find where they can be great, Aryan nation, right? You just see this throughout history all the time where these horrific cities throughout the scriptures just conquer other places and they just destroy. You even think about right now. Do you understand how many kiddos and children and teenagers and adults are trafficked for sex right now in our cities. And you know, every time a Super Bowl happens, the reality of the amount of children being mistreated in those cities is horrific, even with huge task force trying to stop it. And you go, how do they get all these kiddos from all over the globe to land in that city, in that hotel, and how do people not know it? Right? And here's what God's saying. If, if as one people speak in the same language, they have begun to do this then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. When they were made in my image and likeness with gifts that I gave them, and when they used them for their own glory, in unity, together, they can do some pretty horrific things. So God's about to do something. He says this, really, really interesting. Come, let us go down. See that word, us? Um, God's having a conversation already. Again, what we're seeing is Jesus was there in the very beginning. Come, let us. God's having a conversation. Go down and watch what he decides to do. Confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Now, this is really messed up. 
This is going to be kind of a side part of the sermon, but I think it's worth your time here. So watch this. So they're building this big city. God doesn't decide to shoot a, a, you know, a, a nuclear missile on it and blow it up. He doesn't decide to send some kind of natural disaster. He could, right? Big tornado showing what his greatness and his might looks like. To make them stop, to ruin it, he does one thing. He takes away their ability to communicate. You see how crazy this is? Like even thinking about now, even just kind of as a side, not part, like the big part of the story. But when you lose the ability to communicate, it will destroy you or destroy your purpose or mission. Right? So by the way, really, really want to wreck your marriage? It doesn't start with an affair. It doesn't start with those things. It starts with stop when you stop talking. Right? So God, the way by which he ruins this, this whole thing is this takes away their ability to communicate. Now they're having to do hand signs and all sorts of stuff. And then the minute that happens, there's all sorts of assumptions. They can't tell tones. They don't know anything. They're going, why are you yelling at me with that babbling language? You know, all these different things. They went from one day being able to look each other's eyes and have a really, really nice conversation about intentional purpose together to the next day not making any sense. This is crazy, right? Which, by the way, really, really matters to us as a church. Um, one of the things is we survey and figure out in every church, um, one of the biggest battles is actually communication. For example, back in December, we raised a bunch of money to start a counseling center, work on disability ministry, and um, open a kitchen. Now here we are in June, and you're probably wondering, hey, where, what's going on with those things? And I know there was money raised, and well, I'll give you a really quick, uh, counseling center's already open. We got some issues with township and uh, renovating a building. Um, the kitchen is going to cost about twice as much money as we thought it would. We thought it'd be about $100,000 to $120,000. The renovation of this is about two hundred fifty. So there's a conversation going on right now going, uh, $250,000 to not add a single square foot of space in our building is a little concerning because we're kind of cramped out there. So elders in session are kind of working through those things. So that's kind of some of the stuff going on there. But it does matter to us that you get to hear these things. And frankly, this is where I'm stubborn. I want to teach you the Bible on Sundays. I want you to hear about Jesus, not about our corporate structure and what's going on there. But it is important that you guys are kept up, uh, apprised on those things. And so meeting with session, what we decided would be the best thing would be to figure out a way to communicate better. That's both church staff, leaders, communicating to you guys. But it's not just that. Like God speaks to you. And God dwells in many of you. And God is opening up his, uh, his picture of the church and what it should do to you guys. Like, there, I have no special power there, right? Our staff isn't like super Christians. Like, God only uses them to do things. Like, the, the whole idea of this priesthood of the believers, this idea that God dwells in all of us, and the priesthood of believers mean we all have access to God. It would make sense that we would figure out a way to hear what God could be doing there, right? And so, as we work through it, it's made sense that we would have these regular meetings where we get to talk. And we've had, like, the family meeting in the past, but the problem is that's still a couple hundred, three hundred people, and then one person asks lots of questions, which means other people don't get to. And you kind of work through all those things and figure all that out. And so we just thought, we need to have more frequent meetings with more people than just me. Because, frankly, guys, I don't have much authority here. If you ask me if you can use the building, if I tell you yes, you're in big trouble because I have no authority to tell you yes. So you're going to show up here and the doors are going to be locked, right? And because I'm a people pleaser, I'll probably want to tell you yes. So all sorts of messy things there, right? So what we're trying to do is figure out how to distribute leadership, make sure that you can know who's leading and praying for this place and be able to ask questions and offer ideas. And so that hence why we're going to do this regular meeting of an evening with the elders. So this Wednesday, 6.30, promptly, we're going to have a meeting where you can ask those questions, get caught up to speed on what's going on, share your ideas, and they might not have all the answers, but they'll go, 
we actually strategically place this meeting the, uh, the Wednesday before next Tuesday, the third Tuesday every month, our, our board, our elders gets together. So we'll be able to evaluate and, and, and respond pretty quickly to you. And they'll be able to do that because I am terrible at that. Like particularly email, you'll send me an email. I, I, I just get washed up in it. So really bad at communicating there and so want to fix those things. And so that's some of the stuff going on. Why? Because you see here, if you want to ruin something, take away the ability to communicate. So uh, God thwarts their plans. All he does is confuse their language, right? But you go, okay, well, what, what went wrong for them that God decided to, to confuse their language? Let me just read it to you again. Here's what it says. Come, let us build a city for ourselves with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. See, um, really elementary, really good thing probably you can teach your kids if you want to think about sin and what it actually means. Um, we're not, we're not, a good way to explain it would be if you want to understand what sin is, just look at what's in the middle of it. And it's the word I, right? Want to really understand sin, look at right in the middle of the word, and it's I. Sin originates with I, with I will, right? It's very different than God's will. I will is where all this happens. These people go, I will make a name for ourselves. I will build a, a tower. I will. So when we take God, put him over here, either because we don't believe he exists or because we like our plans better than us, we put him up there and it all originates with I, right? It all originates with us thinking about ourselves and what we get from it. The, the, the root of all evil, of all sin is pride and the root of pride is I, right? Happens to be in the middle of that word as well. And so, uh, and you know, this is really interesting is we think about even the serpent, Satan, who tempts in the garden. We have some better understanding of why Satan is the way he is. And here's the reason. It's not because he murders unicorn babies and drinks their blood, right? I mean, that's not why Satan is so bad. In fact, let me tell you, Isaiah tells us exactly why Satan became the way he did. Let me read it to you. It's not going to be on the screens. But I want you to just listen to the words, I will. Watch this. This is what, so Isaiah said, that's a prophet, explaining why God kicked Satan out of heaven. Here's what he said. You said in your heart, here's this, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zion. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the realm. This is Isaiah talking. Realm of the dead to the depths of the pit. So when we see what happens in our broken world, it all starts with I will. I will. I will. And God, in his mercy, by the way, decides to judge the people at the Tower of Babel. And this is really interesting. You think about, it doesn't really seem like mercy, right? It seems more like judgment. But let me tell you this. Anything, any judgment that's before eternal judgment is actually God's mercy to you. Any judgment that God offers you, that's not eternal judgment, not eternal damnation, not you are separated from me for all eternity. Any judgment from God to you that's not eternal judgment is actually God being really merciful. He's going, you guys got to get this. You got to understand this. This towel will not fix you. So he judges them. He separates them. And why? Because he's now going, there was always a plan. And remember the plan? It was you and your spouses throughout the entire earth fruitful, multiply, for my name's sake, right? And so watch what happens next. Verse 8, so the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. It doesn't tear it down. It stops building it. So they, they had this plan. They had this desire. God thwarts it and gets them back to their original purpose, which is go to the ends of the earth. But do wonder why he doesn't actually just ruin the whole thing. Like, wouldn't it make more sense that he just destroys the whole thing and wipes it clean and 
And yet what he really does here is leads kind of a, leaves kind of a monument for it. And I was thinking about that and thinking, ah, oh, I got a lot of those monuments in my life. A lot of them. I got scars, like physical scars in my body from some dumb things I've done. Right? I got um, some pain that just never gone away. Right? I have, I mean, I think about even right now, last year, I got this, uh, we, decided, we sold a house and decided that we were going to stay here for a while. Uh, the interviews didn't go well while we were in Dallas, so we think we're going to stay for a while. That's a joke. That's a joke. Okay. Um, and so we spent a, a significant amount of money in our backyard on a pool. And it's been a horrific process. A horrific. It's still, like, we've had, they've had to put plaster on a couple times. They'll have to come back again for a third time and chip it all down. And so every day I just look up and I go, just sickness in my stomach about all that stuff. And imagine how we could have spent money or time or all those things, right? So I don't know what you got there. I don't know what kind of idol that you kind of thought would be the thing that fixes the thing. Maybe you got, a, maybe you, got you know, dissolution papers from that marriage, right? I mean, I don't, I don't know what you got. Maybe you're still got that knock in that, on your car because you never changed the oil. And every day when you get in, you hear it knock and you're like, oh, whatever it is, right? So we got all these different things that we thought were going to be the thing and they ended up not being the thing. And so what do we do with those? What do we do with our tower that's standing that was supposed to be the thing? You got all that education, not, not even using it now, or whatever it is. What is the thing that you thought would be the thing that ended up not being the thing? And Tim Keller says there's, only, there's ways you got to respond when your idol doesn't fulfill you, right? And he says there's three options. The first one would be this. He could, um, could blame the idol. It's the idol's fault. That you thought it was that your spouse. It must be his fault. Must be her fault. Must be my kid's fault. Right? It's my boss. I thought this job would be it, but it's my boss. Right? You can blame the idol, uh, which, by the way, doesn't really help anything. Doesn't give any kind of solution for you. Or um, you can blame yourself. I'm such an idiot. I can't believe I did that. Which is the category I live in a lot. What was I thinking? By the way, that doesn't fix anything either. Just makes you not like yourself. The other one makes you not like the other person. Really doesn't really help much. The third one would be this. Uh, you can blame the world. Our world's just broken. It's just in despair. There's no good in this world. Forget it. You know, and it just makes you jaded and angry all the time and bitter. You can't even drive around here because of the traffic. Whatever it is, right? By the way, that doesn't fix anything either. Just makes you an angry person, which will eventually make you an isolated person. So all three of these things, they actually first make you angrier, and second, they kind of make you more alienated. And then Keller says, oh, you can do this. You can look for your hope in a different idol, in a different world, right? So if none of those things can fix it, that tower doesn't fix it, and you're looking for a place to belong, you're looking for a purpose, and you're looking for greatness. And that job, that spouse, that car, that thing didn't do it. Perhaps you can find a place to belong, a place to find purpose, and a place for greatness in something else. Which is why C.S. Lewis says, if you find in this world that there is nothing that can satisfy you, then it perhaps is because you were actually meant for a different world. And it continues, and he says this. So the, uh, verse 9, that is why, why it was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So God gets them back into their purpose. This is where some people go, that's where Pangea happened, right? I don't know if that's the case or not. The little puzzle pieces of continents, maybe God separated that way. No idea. Don't really have an explanation for it. If God wanted to, you know, beam them to different places, because he 
It's better than Star Trek. He could do that, right? I don't know how they get there. I just know they get there. I don't know if they have to migrate. I don't know. I just know they get there, right? And now people are in every part of the earth for one purpose, to make his name famous for his name's sake. And so all this starts with the family, and then they mess it up. So there's a family and a purpose, family and a purpose. Family is supposed to be fruitful, multiply, human growth and development should happen, and then it gets wrecked. And we can go, see, the family's just wrecked. What do we do? There's no hope, right? And now we still got to be good stewards of everything God entrusts us with, like he does in the beginning, but there's no hope because there's no family. Family's broken. Look in our world. Look all over the country. Look all over the globe. Family is broken, and none of us would argue that. And we go, okay, if that was God's plan and that's not there anymore, what do we do? Well, here's the really neat thing. God didn't just set up the institution of family. He actually sets up another institution. And that institution was actually put into place to redeem the first one, which is family that got broken. You know what that was? You know what he decided to do to help people find a place to belong, to help them find their purpose and glorify a great God? He gives us another institution. And Jesus actually comes and he establishes it himself. And he uses this word, the ecclesia, to talk about it. And he refers to a group of people that belonged, almost like soldiers, right? And that word is how we translate to the word church. First institution was family. It gets messed up the way that Jesus comes and redeems it. He gives us another institution, the church. To go. You want to belong? Yep, that's going to happen now in the church. You want to grow and be developed? Yep, going to happen within the framework of the church. You want purpose? Yep, going to happen in the framework of the church. You really want to experience greatness? Well, then come with other people and worship and celebrate a great God. That all happens within the framework of the church. And what's really interesting, when Jesus decides to establish this church, I'm not making this up, this is crazy, okay? So we see it get broken, the institute get broken, and the way that God's going to redeem family, which we're on the mission to do here, right? And the way that God does that is he actually establishes a church. And we see the very first church meeting. So crazy, guys. Not like when they met in the synagogue. I'm talking about when Jesus dies and he said he was God, he then came back to life to prove he was God. And then he gave them his last words to them were, hey, you're going to go to the ends of the earth. But before you do, this is what he says, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is what he says. This is after he came back to life, after being dead. He said, but you will receive my power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses, watch this, in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So I'm going to redeem this. You still got the same mission. And he tells them that they're supposed to wait. Now, if you're familiar with what happens here, Jesus dies. Then a few days later, he comes back to life. Then he lives on this planet for 40 days again, revealing his plan, showing all those things. And then he ascends to his Father in heaven. He goes back to be with God. He is with his dad again, like he always was, right? He is there, and it says he's interceding on our behalf. That's him actually reminding God that he paid the price for our sins. He's going, Daddy, you gotta forgive him. I paid the price for that. You see all that happened. Then somewhere between seven and 10 days later, there's this moment that's called Pentecost. This is the first church meeting. And what's really, God's providence didn't plan this. That day is celebrated every year, about 50 days from Easter, whatever it is. And guess what day that is? That's today. Right now, for 2,000 years, the church has basically been celebrating this day where the Pentecost happens. That's where God shows up. But instead of me telling you what happens, let me read it to you. I'm not going to pause very often. I'm just going to read a couple of verses. Watch what happens here. And you're going to see some really redemptive work that God reestablishes as a result of what happened at the Tower of Babel. Watch. You ready? Here goes. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. They were having a church meeting, Right? And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. So something crazy is happening here. They're experiencing some crazy greatness in this place where they're belonging, right? 
they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. That sounds scary. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, watch this, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, watch this. You don't understand what's going on here. Uh, Luke's going to help you understand by telling you who's there. No, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. So these are people that were scattered, had different languages. And he decides to list some of them. When they heard the sound, the crowd came together in bewilderment because each heard the, their own language being spoken. Remember where he separated the languages? Watch this. He's actually redeeming it. Instead of a family, it got messed up. God splits the languages. Now he reestablishes an institution to fix all those things. That's the church. And now they're all speaking the same language. Watch this. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears this in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. They're going, every language is going, no, 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 God's speaking in my language, right? Amazed and perplexed, they said, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. I love that about them. Then Peter stood up with the 11. This is one of the apostles, the one charged with, that he said, on, on you, Peter, I'm going to build my church. So one of the first church leaders, right? First church pastor. And then Peter stood up, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. And everybody can understand what he's saying. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what, I'm, what I say. I love this. These people are not drunk. <laughs> I love this. That's what he says to say. His first words. Hey, listen. These people are not drunk, right? As you suppose, because it's only nine in the morning. That's what the Bible says. So he's explaining the whole movement of the church. He goes, no, 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 they're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning, right? They're, they're not drunk. And then he goes on, and he explains the story of God and Jesus. And he goes, look, Jesus came to redeem this. Jesus came to set it all back. You were looking for a place to belong. Jesus brought you that. You were looking for a purpose. Jesus brought you that. You were looking for greatness. Jesus is great. And you decided you didn't like his greatness. And you said, instead of we will follow you, Jesus, instead of saying God's will, you said I will. And what you said I will about is you said I will murder him. I will crucify him. And Peter goes, literally, you all put Jesus on a tree. And he died. He died. And you thought that you were clever, but that's not really what happened. Jesus needed to die because he needed to pay the price for his sins. And by dying, he was able to come back to life to prove that he is God. Have you ever seen another person bring himself back to life? No, only Jesus does that. And so Peter's going, you've got to believe in this Jesus. He's the one who redeems all this. And that's what it says in the next several verses. And then finally in Acts 2, verse 37, watch how the people responded. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? You tell me there's a place to find community? place to belong, a place to have purpose, a place to experience greatness, a place to be restored from our brokenness. You're telling me that? What shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. So Peter goes, you've got to change the way you think. You've got to stop building your own towers. You've got to stop putting all your hope in I will. You've got to, you have to abandon self-reliance, right? You've got to repent. You've got to say, God, it's all for you. It's all for your glory, not for mine. You are the best thing, right? You've got to repent. And all of you receive the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you, oh, this is so good, and for your children and all, all, all who are far off. So he goes, this church and this promise not only is going to fix the kingdom, it's going to fix your family. 
Not only is it going to fix the kingdom, it's going to fix your family. You want your family restored? It's by repenting and putting your hope in Jesus, right? So he goes, for you and for your children, even those who are far off, even those who are across the globe, off at college, whatever it is, right? And it says, all for all whom the Lord God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized. Watch this. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They didn't do anything special. God built it. They stopped going, I will. And they said, God will. And he built the church right there in front of them. Those who, uh, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. This is the church, the breaking of bread and prayer. That's why you should show up on cow and eat with us. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. No longer I will, but God will, right? Everything in common. Every day they continued to meet together in belonging, in community, in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. These are glad and sincere hearts. The human race hasn't seen much of those. Glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. There's a whole sermon I wish I could preach right now on just the picture of the church. But this is all I want you to see. Watch this. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. In other words, not I will, but God will. It's God's work. It's our witness. God is literally saying, pull up a seat, find your community, and look for greatness. Pull up your seat. It's not your work. It's my work. You just watch you get to be a part of the story. You get to participate in the story. But you're not the chief character, and you don't have to lose sleep over how it goes. God's going to pull up a seat. Find your family. Love life. Have glad and sincere hearts. It literally says, and God's added to their numbers. So they stopped building, and when they stopped building, they started enjoying. And I think that's the thing God's been telling them for quite some time is, Josh, you've got to stop building, and you've got to start enjoying. The kingdom of God is available to you, and it's not about your performance. You can stop building. You should stop building, and you should start enjoying. So the bands will come up here, and I'm, they're going to give you some words to sing on this. Really, really, really pretty neat. And kind of the big picture is this God, Jesus, is a lot bigger than we give him credit for, and that's why we say I will and not God's will. And so this Jesus is a lot bigger than we thought. And there's this bridge that's the, towards the end of the song, that, and literally it says this. I love this. Um, this, is, this is what I hope is a prayer for us. It says, I will rest in the Father's hands, meaning stop building, start enjoying. I will rest in the Father's hands and then leave the rest in the Father's hands. So you want a solution for all this? Father's hands. You can start resting in the Father's hands and leave the rest also in the Father's hands. So stop building, start enjoying. And would you stand with me as we get ready to sing? And I'm going to pray for us. Oh, Jesus. Boy, Lord, would we not build our own towers? And would we... Stop building, God, and start enjoying. Would we rest in your hands today? God, for some of us, this might be the very first time we go, God, if you're real, then we're going to lean into you. And we're going to bring all this other stuff. So God, we rest in your hands and leave the rest. Leave the rest. The messy relationships and the complications about our finances and the bitterness of our families. Whatever that is, God, would we start resting in your hands and then leave all the rest here, God? And would we walk out of here? with those glad and sincere hearts that you offer us. And I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.